So for the last several weeks, maybe eight, nine weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this passage in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Some of Jesus' most comprehensive teaching and also some of his most challenging teaching where he's taught about what it looks like to live under Jesus as king, what it looks like to live in an upside-down kingdom where those who mourn are blessed, where the meek are blessed, where the peacemakers are celebrated, and where we're called and invited into this new way of living, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness that goes beyond the religious leaders, a righteousness that goes beyond merely externals, but a righteousness that begins to shape and change our hearts, where it's not simply our outward actions, but what's going on inside of us. And that's what God is calling us to. That's what Jesus is inviting us to, and he equips us, he empowers us to do this, to live this whole new kind of life. But as you read his words, they're challenging. They're hard. Sometimes we want to set them aside. Sometimes people read them and think, oh, that's just an ideal. Nobody really expects that. But I think if we pay attention to what Jesus is saying, he does expect us to live this way. It isn't just he's painting a picture and saying, well, maybe, but he's calling us to live into this. And he invites us to do that. But he also realizes he's going to have to help us to do that. And we see that it's something that he's not just painting as a picture because these are the words that not only Jesus invites us to, but these are the words that Jesus lives by. Each one of these descriptions that Jesus calls is something we see in his life. So last week we talked about this idea of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, a picture of what we might call nonviolent resistance or non um, where we break the cycle, where there's this picture of somebody comes and they backhand you across the cheek and instead of retaliating, you turn the other cheek. And it's a way, it's an active way, it's not a passive way. Sometimes these words are read as Jesus is inviting us to be doormats, to just be walked over. But instead, Jesus is inviting us to respond, but in a different way, a way that breaks those cycles that we so often see, cycles of violence that continue and continue. And this week, in some sense, it's a combination, the culmination of all that he's teaching, at least in this section where he's been kind of giving these contrasts of, you have heard it said, but I say to you, where he talks about how they've understood what God has called them to. And then Jesus now speaks as the one who fulfills the law, the one who completes it, the one who fully interprets and saying, but it's saying something more. He doesn't take it away. He makes it clear. He says, not one jot, not one tittle, not one little stroke of the pen. Nothing disappears from what God has said, but here's what it means to you. And what he wants to people to understand, he wants us to understand is it's about something being active. And so he says in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you pull out your Bible and you started flipping, you could find what he's talking about when it says, love your enemy. We could go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, we're called to love our neighbor. But what about hate your enemy? He said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. I would challenge you, there's not really anywhere that Jesus is quoting from. So I want us to look at two parts of that. One is, there was a debate back then, and it's probably still a debate today, is 
Okay, love your neighbor. The question is, well, then who's my neighbor, right? In fact, Jesus had a confrontation, a interaction with somebody who came and asked him that exact same thing. Jesus said, well, are you supposed to love your neighbor? He said, well, I, could you define neighbor for me? Now, if we were to go back to the book of Leviticus, it talks there about neighbors being the people of Israel, but it also implies that they're the foreigners and the immigrants. And Jesus makes the picture more clear. He says, it's everybody. And so this debate that raged back then is also sometimes a debate that goes on today where we ask ourselves, well, I know Jesus said love my neighbor, but I mean, does that mean that person there? Can we maybe, you know, neighbor is kind of a vague term. And so Jesus is stepping into this debate. And he's also getting at this thing, this question of where they're getting at this question. Well, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And I think there's two ways maybe we can understand this. One is to think of this idea of the way that the Hebrews spoke, the kind of language they used of love and hate. And so one way to understand this, I think, is people were thinking, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. It was kind of a categorization. Well, we love our neighbors, but I hate our enemies. It's kind of a lesser one. In other words, our neighbors are first, our enemies are second. In fact, Jesus uses language like this. So in Luke chapter 14, he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So do you think Jesus really wanted us to hate our family? What was he doing here? He was ranking. He says, you got to love me first. You still love your family, but it's this section. So I think one way to understand it would maybe to be to say what he's getting at is saying, people were saying, well, we love our neighbors and we hate our enemies. They're just kind of below. We love our neighbors more and hate our, or love our enemies a little less. That might be one way to say it or at least put them second. Another way to think of it is, Jesus, last week when we were reading about it, he talked about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Where whatever comes to us, we return that in favor. Not more than, but not less than. And that was their understanding, the Hebrew understanding, the Jewish understanding, the Israelite understanding of what God's commands were. And so one way to think of it is kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth when it comes to our enemies. Because if our enemies hate us, well, what's the proper response? Hate them back, because that's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so I think that's kind of what's going on here, is there was this thinking that was going on, and Jesus was saying, you've heard it said, you've understood it to mean this, that we love our neighbor, but we hate our enemy. Whatever that means, whether it just means loving them less, or it means actually returning their hate for the hate. Because Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what's important to understand is when the disciples, when Jesus' followers heard this, enemies was not an empty concept. I mean, they had Roman soldiers occupying. They faced threats and persecution. And the early followers of Jesus, who Matthew was writing to, were being sent for execution. And so when they hear these words of Jesus, it's not just a vague idea of, well, there's enemies out there somewhere, but it was something real. But Jesus calls, he says, we're supposed to love our enemies. And love, love is one of those words that we use a lot for lots of different things. You know, I love ice cream. Or, 
or I love my new show, or I love whatever it is. I love, I love barbecue. I love to go fishing. And so we've kind of, in some sense, taken this word and watered it down. Where love is really this desire to seek the best of another. And I think love is a, the kind of word we really want to return to its true meaning of, it's a word to be used for people. Now, you might like ice cream. You might like it a lot. A really, really lot or whatever. But, but it's not the kind of thing we love because you can't wish the good of another. You can't wish the good of ice cream. In fact, when you love ice cream, you don't wish the good. You want to eat it. But to love is to wish the good of another, to desire the good, and to work for the good of another. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not saying, oh, have a vague, nice feeling towards them. Because even that, we talk about being in love. And love is simply this emotion, some sort of reaction to them, and something we can use that language of we fall in of or we fall out of love. But Jesus says, love your enemies. It's this active desire to seek them. And so the action of turning your cheek are not passive doormats, but they're active too. And he says this, he says, so now, he says, love your enemies that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And what he's getting at is not the sense of earning or thing. He's not saying, well, love so that God will make you his children. It's a picture of demonstrating. We're reflecting who God is. We're demonstrating to the world by, by loving our enemies. We're showing the world who God is. And who is God? He's the one that says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so it's an illustration of God's behavior. And so the picture of it is in some sense, if you drive down the street, if you're walking along and you see somebody, you can't look and say, oh, there's no rain falling on that house. They must be God's enemy. Or the rain's falling over there. They must be. But instead, God, it's a picture of God's grace to everyone. That he sends the rain and the sun on everyone. And so it's a picture. He's saying, this is what God's love looks like, and it's what our love is to look like, where it's extended to all. And he kind of gets at the point of saying, you know, your righteousness should be more than others. He says, you know, if you love those who love you, what reward will they get you? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He's saying, we're called to a deeper life. He's saying, everybody likes their friends and neighbors. Everybody likes their family. Well, supposed to. He says, if you greet only your only people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And so it's this picture of, it's perfectly normal to love one group of people, to love the people that are a part of your community. But Jesus says we're called to do more than that. I mean, anybody can love people who like them. Anybody can love people who are kind to them. Anybody who can love people who are good and gracious and provide to them. But Jesus is saying there's a higher standard for his followers. And he sets the bar pretty high when he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And this is one of those verses that kind of gets people to stumble sometimes, say, perfect. But I think what he's getting at, and kind of the language is something more towards be complete or more mature. In other words, as God loves all, we are to love all. We're to love perfectly or completely. In other words, not just our neighbors. 
Sounds easy, right? Love your enemies. You know what to do. Go do it, right? Well, but Jesus never says it's going to be easy. And he never says it's even practical. He never says there's some great benefit to do it. I mean, there is a benefit that comes out of it, of ending these cycles of violence. But what Jesus is getting at is this kind of love is what makes us unique. This is what makes the followers of Jesus unique. It's this better righteousness. It's this, it's this picture of exceeding the religious leaders of loving your neighbor. And so I think of examples, people like that. One is John Lewis. John Lewis, a late congressman, but it was also a member of the civil rights movement. And one of the things that John Lewis did as a young man, and he's one of the heroes of the civil rights movement, was in his early days, he was in his early 20s, he was a freedom rider. And the freedom riders were these groups of blacks and whites who would get on these buses and deliberately enter into towns that they knew were segregated, where the bus stops were segregated, where the restaurants were segregated. And they would take these buses in to try and bring freedom. But what would happen is often as they were coming to these towns, the local Ku Klux Klan would find out about it. The local white supremacists would find out. it, And even the law enforcement in many of these towns would find out about it. So it wasn't unusual for the police to wait 30 minutes after the bus had showed up to come after the riders had been beaten. And so in one particular incident in South Carolina, John Lewis came into town and there were a number of people and they, as they got off the bus, they were savagely beaten. And there was a man there, a member of the Klan named Elwin Wilson. And Elwin Wilson attacked and he sat and he just pummeled John Lewis again and again and again. Now that story has an amazing ending because decades later, this memory haunted Elwin Wilson. And so he sought out, he tried to figure out who was this black man that he had been beating. And he traced him down and he figured out it was John Lewis. And he sought out John Lewis and he asked John Lewis to forgive him. And he did. And after that, they went on this speaking tour together and they spoke about the love of God and the grace of God. But John Lewis in one of his biographies, as I understand, talked about remembering that particular scene. And John Lewis talks about in that moment, he had believed deeply in the words of Jesus that we're not called to repay violence for violence. He believed deeply in this philosophy of nonviolent resistance. And so as he was allowing, as he was being hit and he was being beaten, he was reflecting on this white man who was beating him. And the thought that was going through his head was, it's not enough for me to not hate him. I have to love him. He was saying, it's not enough for me to not hate him. I have to love him. Because John Lewis knew the words of Jesus. Where it says, where Jesus said, love your enemy. Jesus doesn't say, stop hating your neighbor, enemy. But instead, love your enemy. So what does it look like for us to love our enemy? And how do we do it? How do we become that kind of person? I think the first step is confessing who our enemy is. Now, some of us feel like, well, we don't really, I don't really have any enemies. Maybe enemies needs to be defined a little differently. 
Maybe that your enemy is just someone who is, we might say, on the other side. Who holds different views than you do. And sometimes we feel like they're their enemies because they are against the way we understand life to be lived. So sometimes within the church, we look out and I hear the language in the church of there's agendas out there. There's a, you know, an LGBTQ agenda or there's a socialist agenda or a communist agenda. And what begins to happen is we begin to label the others as someone else. And they become the other. And when they become the other, they become dehumanized. They become less than. And so we begin to think that way. It's, it's evangelical Christians versus mainline Christians. It's it's, looks, it's looking at the Muslims, or it's whites versus blacks, or blacks and browns. It's Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. But it's this idea of it, there's the other out there, someone else who has a different way of understanding the world, someone else who has a different way of thinks the world should be going. And because it's not my way, they're my enemy. Now, maybe you're not like me, but I have a way that I think things should run. I have a way that I think, you know, there's certain things that the government should do, certain things that should happen in life, the way the streets should run, all sorts of different ideas about the way things should happen. But surprise, surprise, there are other people who think it should go a different way. There are people who have different ideas about the problems in the world or the way those problems should be solved. They have different ideas about the way human beings should interact or about human sexuality, all these different topics. They have different ideas about that. And oftentimes what happens in our world is they simply then become the other. They're opposed to us and so they become our enemy. And so while they may not be actively attacking you or persecuting you, you may not be laying on the ground being beaten by them. It may feel like you are in a war against them. That language even comes up so often. What? A culture war. Culture war means there's this difference of ideas about the way our culture should be. Well, what happens in war? People try and kill each other, right? They destroy each other. And in war, you have enemies and allies. And so even that language gets to it. And so I think part of it is understanding that and realizing where we are. And so I was, I was, I was reflecting on that. I was thinking of the word Desmond Tutu, and Desmond Tutu was a religious leader in South Africa during the times of apartheid. And apartheid was this, much like the Jim Crow laws of the United States, this hierarchy, this structure, this caste system between whites and blacks in South Africa. A legalized structure where blacks were relegated to certain things and the laws applied differently. And in the midst of that, Desmond Tutu, along with Nelson Mandela and others, fought against this apartheid and eventually overcame it again through nonviolent resistance. But what Desmond Tutu did was he took his Christianity and he also adopted some ideas or brought in some ideas, um, maybe um, modified some ideas that were true in South Africa. And so there's a term in South Africa used by a number of the different in different language groups, this term Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is a uh, Zulu word, and it shows up in a number of different um, the language groups. And what Ubuntu means, sometimes it's translated simply humanity. But one way of phrasing it is often, I am because we are. So Ubuntu means I am because we are. And it's this idea that what affects you affects me also. 
We see this in part in the New Testament when Paul talks about the body of Christ. He talks about one part suffers, all parts suffer. And Ubuntu takes that and expands it beyond the body of Christ and takes it beyond to all of humanity. So when one part is suffering, when one part is hurting, all are hurting. And so what Desmond Tutu talked about then was this idea again, and again he was, he was drawing on another person who was being beaten in the midst of these things. And he was saying, when I am being beaten, this other person is treating me like an animal. In other words, they've lost their humanity. And so what I need to do is love them so they will regain their humanity. He said, because I am, because we are. In other words, seeing that that other person had lost something, and so our love of our enemy begins to transform them because what happens when we love them is we see them no longer as someone to be hated. We no longer see them as the other. We no longer dehumanize them, but instead we turn them back and begin to bring them back into who they're called to be. And so the words of Jesus are this call to do this, to confess who your enemy is. So I would invite you even in this week, think about who are those people that you struggle with? What are those things when they say something, when they propose an idea and it just all of a sudden you find your blood pressure creeping up a little bit? Or maybe you can identify your enemy by who's that person you just intentionally avoid all the time? And so maybe even it starts at a slightly lower level. Maybe it's not just your enemy. Maybe it's just those who annoy you. Because I'm pretty sure if Jesus says, love your enemy, he also means love the people who annoy you. Who are those people you just think, oh, I don't really, you see them on the caller ID. Not here. Or you're walking through Meyer. Oh, look, I've got to go down this aisle now. Or you're wondering and you're trying to find, avoid those difficult conversations. And so when Jesus says this, and when we do that, what have we done? We've turned away and we've begin, begun to see them as less than. And so Jesus is inviting us to love them. And so Martin Luther King gave a sermon on loving our enemy. And one of the points that he made in this sermon was that one of the first things we need to do is to look inside of ourselves. Begin to see where the hatred begins sometimes. But the next thing we need to do is we need to remind ourselves that whoever this person is, whoever this group is that we see as our enemy, that they are loved by God. And so that's what I think Jesus was getting at with this picture of the rain and the sun, but also recognizing that Jesus came and died for each and every person. And so we begin to say, whoever this person is that's our enemy, that they're deeply loved by God. And then we're called to pray for them. So when Jesus says that, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Praying for someone can be a way that begins to change and to shape our hearts. And now there are certainly different ways to pray for people. We're not praying against people. We're praying for people. So the prayer is now like, please God, let my enemy fall down and you know, please God, may they go broke. Please God, may they, no, that's not praying for. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor, theologian who lived during the time of the Nazis and, and talked about and wrote an entire book on the Sermon on the Mount and where he was shaped in that place of life where he knew what enemies were. Where there was Nazi Germany in this 
people who were taking people and putting them in prisons and put, take, sending them off to concentration camps, and he understood it. And what Bonhoeffer talked about, he said, in prayer we go to our enemies to stand at their side. We are with them, near them, for them before God. We are doing for them what they can't do for themselves. He says, we're with them and for them. We are doing for them what we can't, they can't do for themselves. So we take them to prayer. And so Bonhoeffer goes on and he gets at this idea. He says, pray for those who persecute you or bless those. He, he says this, and he gives an example of it. And he says, you are enemies. Be blessed by God. Your curse cannot harm us, but may your poverty be filled by the riches of God, the blessing of God, against whom you rail in vain. We shall willingly bear your curse if only God's blessing comes over you. To begin to do this where we begin to bless those who persecute us, to begin to pray for those. And so it may be a matter of finding a prayer in the scripture. A great one is the one found the Numbers blessing found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And now, what if we took that prayer and directed it towards those we see as our enemy, those we see as the other? Oh, may the Lord bless him. May the Lord make his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. The Lord turned his face toward him. This picture of it, we get that picture of what does it look like when somebody turns their face toward you? What's that feeling? I mean, we know what it's like when somebody turns away from you, right? And now it's this invitation for God to turn his face to and give them your peace. And so maybe that's the prayer that you need to begin to pray for your enemy. It's that they be blessed, that they would succeed in life. And so maybe, again, that begins with that, that difficult person. So even if we're not quite ready to love our enemy, we begin by loving the difficult person or by loving our competitor. And this is what soul training, what trans-spiritual transformation looks like. It's like anything in life. When you start playing a musical instrument, you don't pick up a Bach or a Mozart you know, pick up the most difficult thing and begin playing that. What well, you begin with something like twinkle, twinkle, little star. When you begin hitting a baseball, you don't stand on a mound and get 95 mile an hour fastballs. You start maybe by hitting what? A ball off a tee. And then a soft pitch and then a little faster and a little faster. All of life, we begin that way. When you learn to drive a car. Well, some of you may not have learned that way, but you should be, begin both slowly and surely. Somebody doesn't just throw you behind a NASCAR and say, okay, hit the road at 200 miles an hour. All of life begins, we take small steps. And the same way goes with the training of our soul. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, if we've been struggling to love those who annoy us or love those who are our competitors, start there and grow into it. It takes training and practice. And so maybe that's what it begins with is that loving that person. Who's, who's that person maybe at our workplace who we maybe see as a competitor? And we begin to say, you know, God, pray for them. I pray that they would succeed. When they have that next presentation, when they have that next opportunity for a, a promotion, God, I pray that they get that. 
Or maybe it's somebody you see that's just challenging you. Say, God, I want them to be recognized for their goodness. You're playing on a sports team and you feel like, ah, oh, that guy, that person just annoys me so much. I don't like it. Say, God, I pray for them. I want them to do really well at what they're doing. Or it's that difficult person. And you begin to see who they are and you begin to see, even ask God to say, God, show me the goodness in them. Because I would suggest this, that no matter who your enemy is, I think almost 99% of them, there's some good somewhere in them. And probably a whole lot of good for most of our enemies. Or most of the people who annoy us or most of the difficult people. There's, there's a lot of good. And so, God, maybe it's God, show me the good in them. But pray that God would bless them. That God would cause them to succeed. In part, we do this because we recognize that it's God's help. You know, to say, this isn't just us loving our enemy. It's God loving our enemy through us. Because we might look at someone who's difficult. We might look at someone who's challenging. We might look at someone we, at this point in life, really despise. Or maybe someone who's harming us, inflicting harm on us. We say, how could I possibly love that person? I don't have enough love. Because we see love as this limited amount, this limited quantity. And what Jesus is inviting us to do is say, you may not have enough love, but I do. And so we let God's love, because we have to ask the question, how much, how much love does God have? I mean, is God's loving, you know, I mean, if we took it and divided it up all among you, do you think God would run out of love? No. And so when Jesus is inviting us to love our enemies, he's saying, if you don't have enough love inside of you, have some of mine. And the great thing about God's love, he's not going to run out. He's not going to be like, oh, I love that guy, but like, Jesus, I need some more love. Sorry, I'm all out today. Come back tomorrow. Jesus has this unlimited. And so we do that. And then we also realize this. I think this is the final thing we'll, we'll conclude with. Is again, going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what he says is love is unconquerable by never asking what the enemy is doing to it, but what Jesus has done. In other words, sometimes we think, well, but if I love, what's going to happen? I think love will be conquered. Maybe, maybe love won't be enough. Because the enemy is doing all these things and Bonhoeffer says, no, love cannot be conquered. As long as we ask the right question, because we have to ask the question, what has Jesus done? And one of the central messages of the Bible is to be reminded that we were at one time God's enemies. Paul writes about it. He says, while we were yet sinners, while we were still God's enemies, what happened? Jesus died for us. In other words, our enemy status was conquered by the love of Jesus on the cross. And so if our enemy status with God can be conquered, so can the enemy status of any other person in the world. And so we allow the love of Jesus, who loved us when we were yet enemies, to flow through us so that we can too love those who are our enemies. And so may God equip us. May Jesus empower us. May we fix our eyes on him and see his love and let it flow through us to love our enemies. Amen.